0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is The Goods and bads of Technology. In the first half, Derek A. Marquis shares his address to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Then in the second half, Van C. Gessel speaks on The Welding Link of Culture.
1: A few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I asked my daughters what they thought I should talk about in my devotional address this morning. My daughter, Jessica, who will be an entering freshman here at BYU, said, Maybe you should talk about See the Good in the World. That's our tagline here at BYU TV. Her older sister, Kylie, who is now a senior at BYU but happened to be home for the weekend, said, Dad, it really doesn't matter what you talk about. Just try not to put us to sleep. (laughs) Jessica, you win. Kylie, I can't make any promises, but I do think you should go to bed earlier at night. <laughs> this morning marks your last devotional of what, hopefully for you, has been an incredible semester. For the many of you who will be graduating in a few days, this may also be the last devotional that you'll ever attend at BYU, or at least for a very long while. And whether this is your last for a few weeks or your last for a long time, I have prayed that the things I'll share with you will have some value as you prepare for your next semesters in school or your next chapters in life. In a moment, I'm going to ask those of you who have cell phones, iPhones, iPads, other portable devices, including those that don't start with the letter I, to hold them up. So if you could pull those from your backpacks without getting distracted and without playing words with friends or angry birds, that would help me a little bit later with an object lesson. When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrived at the empty tomb, they were greeted by an angel of the Lord who told them, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Matthew chapter 28 goes on to state, They departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and with great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. Within a short period of time, we presume—remember, they were running— The message had been delivered, and the eleven disciples were again reunited with their Lord and Master. It was then that the Savior of the world gave his first post-resurrection commandments to his disciples. He told them, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He didn't tell them to visit with their neighbors or to try to track out their communities, but rather to go and to teach all nations. I wonder if those 11 disciples or the other followers of Christ at the time stopped and asked themselves, either verbally or perhaps in their own minds and hearts, "So how are we going to do this? We have these little fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee, and we don't mind walking a distance or maybe riding a donkey or a camel to a neighboring village, but really, we're supposed to teach all nations. Now, fast-forward with me, if you will, about 1,800 years. Tomorrow, April 6, marks a very special anniversary for Latter-day Saints. It was on that day that the Prophet Joseph Smith gathered with a small group in a farmhouse in western New York and organized the Church of Jesus Christ. Imagine how those six chartered Church members must have felt when Joseph told them, and by the way, we're going to take this gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world. If they stopped to consider what he was saying, can you imagine how overwhelming, perhaps even unrealistic, that charge must have felt to them, perhaps even to Joseph himself? The summary of the first section of the Doctrine and Covenant states that the voice of warning is to all people, not just to the followers of Joseph Smith, not just to that small gathering of saints assembled at that special conference in 1831 where this particular revelation was given, but to all people— then, in the first and second verses at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses that have become meaningful for me and my colleagues at BYU Broadcasting, the Lord states, Hearken, ye people from afar, and ye that are upon the islands of the sea, listen together. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. In our world today, it is easy for us, with our instantaneous access to modern technology, to comprehend at least some of the ways that the admonition of the Savior to his disciples or the early saints from the Prophet Joseph can now be fulfilled—and is beginning to be fulfilled. In earlier times, word traveled person to person or through written epistles. If someone needed a message to arrive quickly, they could run. Or perhaps they could ride a horse or employ some other form of transportation that by today's standards would seem slow and primitive. If a message needed to reach a large group, they could speak from a hillside. Or perhaps they could erect towers or cause that the copies of the message be painstakingly handwritten and distributed. Think of King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon and the tower that he built and stood upon so that his people could hear his voice. Obviously, such methods of communication pale in comparison to what we are able to do today. In fact, the marvels of what we are able to do today are so instantaneous and commonplace that some of us may miss the miracles that most of us hold in our very hands. Those gathered in this assembly today have almost certainly seen the new BYU Broadcasting Building just east of the Marriott Center. It is the home of the radio and television channels and the broadcast-related websites operated by Brigham Young University. For those who may be watching this address on television or the internet, either in the United States or elsewhere in the world, this new building is the home of the channel you're watching right now, BYU TV. This morning's devotional, in fact, is being transmitted instantaneously to over 180 countries of the world via BYUtv. No pressure. (laughs) Likewise, as was explained by Elder Neil Anderson in Saturday's priesthood session, this past weekend's General Conference was simultaneously translated into 93 languages and instantaneously transmitted to the four corners of the earth via television, radio, satellite transmission, and on the internet at lds.org, byutv.org, the Borman Channel, and a host of other digital platforms. And as described in a recent Salt Lake Tribune article, 29 of those 93 languages from conference were actually translated in other countries As the interpreters received the live audio transmitted from Salt Lake City as the conference was taking place, and then from far-flung foreign lands, they translated the talks and instantly sent their translations back over the Internet to Salt Lake City, where the audio was then married to the video and then instantly beamed out to the countries of the world where that particular language was needed. All this took place during a live broadcast, all in a matter of seconds. The technologies behind so much of what we are so used to are indeed remarkable and miraculous. In 1947, when the technology of television reached less than one-half of one percent of the homes in the United States, President George Albert Smith said, Before us is the magic of television and a host of other remarkable discoveries. We ought to regard these inventions as blessings from the Lord. They greatly enlarge our abilities. They can indeed be blessings if we utilize them in righteousness for the dissemination of the truth and the furtherance of the work of the Lord among men. And in 1974, President Spencer W. Kimball said, King Benjamin caused a great tower to be erected that thereby his people might hear the words which he should speak unto them. Our Father in Heaven has now provided us mighty towers radio and television towers with possibilities beyond comprehension to help fulfill the words of the Lord that the sound must go forth from this place unto all the world. I am confident, he said, that the only way that we can reach most of these millions of our Father's children is through the spoken word over the airwaves. I believe what prophets, seers, and revelators since the dawn of the Restoration have said that the Lord has inspired good men and women throughout the ages—inventors, scientists, philosophers, and explorers—in ways that would lead to the furtherance of His work. Allow me to share with you just a few of the moments in the timeline of technology and The Church of Jesus Christ and this university. I start with the employment of the movable-type printing press. It allowed the Book of Mormon and the Bible, of course, to be printed in Mass as a testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ and of the restored gospel. It was in October of 1861 that the first transcontinental telegraph message was sent in the United States. It was sent by none other than the namesake of this university, Brigham Young. It was just two days later that the Pony Express system was deemed obsolete and ceased to operate. Indeed, The new technology of the telegraph had changed the world as they knew it. In 1897, the earliest audio recording was made of a president of the Church, Wilford Woodruff. His voice and testimony were recorded on a wax cylinder. I'd like to play a portion of that recording for you now. It's hard to understand, but keep in mind this is from 1897 and recorded on a wax tube. I bear my testimony and this true promise of God. It is my testimony, both by myself, a with the States, the eight, will be witness. Incredible, isn't it? On May 6, 1922, President Heber J. Grant delivered the first church message broadcast on the first radio station in Utah, KZN, which we now all enjoy as KSL. It was that same year, 1922, that the first radio station owned by the church was established. And believe it or not, it was an experimental radio station operated by none other than the physics department here at Brigham Young University. Two years later, General Conference was broadcast for the first time on radio in October of 1924, and in July of 1929, the Tabernacle Choir's weekly Music and the Spoken Word broadcast began, which continue today in what is now the longest continuously running broadcast program in the history of radio. I would also note that in each of these instances, our prophets were on the cutting edge of using emerging technologies to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. There are certainly many other mileposts in this timeline, but in the interest of our time this morning, I'm going to fast forward to a time when I was just a little bit younger than most of you. I remember fondly being a young Aaronic priesthood holder in the mid-1970s and sitting with my father in our chapel in Virginia, listening to the priesthood sessions of General Conference which were somehow piped in via a telephone line that somebody had dialed up to Salt Lake City and hooked up to the loudspeakers in the chapel. Now, perhaps a little out of sequence here, but I would be remiss and later questioned by my colleagues if I didn't mention in this timeline of technology in the church and the university the earliest days of KBYU-FM, which just last year celebrated 50 years of broadcasting in Utah. KBYU-TV went on the air in 1965 from the university. BYU-TV, the channel I mentioned earlier, went on the air in the year 2000. And BYU-TV International went on the air in 2007 in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, 24 hours a day. We could go on and talk of the first satellite broadcast of the Church or how the Church has embraced technology— including the internet, including the Church's YouTube channel or the Church's Facebook pages or pages from the various departments of the university. It has been intentional, of course, that I've spent the first half of my talk extolling the virtues of the technologies before us as miracles and blessings from a loving Heavenly Father. But, as we all know from Scripture mastery, there must needs be opposition in all things. We've likewise been warned by prophets, seers, and revelators that the adversary is embracing these same technologies to fulfill his purposes. Elder Russell M. Nelson, in his conference address just this last Saturday, spoke of this truth when he said, The forces of evil will ever be in opposition to the forces of good. Satan constantly strives to influence us to follow his ways and make us miserable even as he is. And in the priesthood session this past Saturday, President Monson said, The moral compass of the masses has gradually shifted to an almost-anything-goes position, where once the standards of the Church and the standards of society were mostly compatible— Now there is a wide chasm between us, and it is growing ever wider. Many movies and television shows portray behavior which is in direct opposition to the laws of God. Do not subject yourself to the innuendo and outright filth which are so often found there. Closed quote. Similar warnings and cautions have been given in past conferences and in other materials from the Brethren, such as in the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. We've been cautioned regarding the internet, movies, music, video games, online chat and social media sites, and the many other forms of media available to us today. I suspect that many of you—perhaps sadly, maybe even most of you—know of someone who once carried with them a wonderful spirit. But because of letting their guard down and being influenced by the side of the media that is not virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, they lost the light they once carried with them. Some who have been overtaken by the darker side of these technological marvels have withdrawn from their families and loved ones. They've let their careers or schoolwork suffer And they've turned from those things that once made them truly happy. And so, for the next few minutes, I'd like to share with you just a few of the things that we might do to keep us from falling into the adversary's technological trap. I'm going to focus on three main strategies which mirror, by the way, the same strategies that we use at BYU Broadcasting as we're trying to expand to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Number one, decide today, right now, who you would like to be and whether your actions and the decisions that you are making today are leading you toward your goal or away from it. I refer to this step with the question, what's your tagline? Number two, conduct a self assessment of your own consumption of media. Or in other words, ask yourself, what's on your playlist? Three, become anxiously and actively engaged in using these technologies for good. Or in other words, ask yourself, what's your role in all this? So first, what's your tagline? I'd encourage you to decide today who you would like to be and whether the decisions and actions that you're making are leading you toward or away from your goal. This, of course, is not just true for the decisions that you're making regarding media consumption, but for a moment, let's consider it in that light. In the broadcast industry, media and television networks often use taglines, usually for branding or marketing purposes, but occasionally as corporate mission statements. Most use these taglines because they define how the networks want us, the viewers, to think of them. I suspect, for example, that most of you could tell me without even thinking about it the tagline for ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. TBS uses... Very funny, and in the 1990s, NBC rolled out must-see TV. I've already told you BYU TV's tagline is "See the good in the world." We use this tagline as the guiding principle for our programming decisions. So, I ask you, what's your tagline? What would you like it to be? As you are considering this, you might also ask yourself, what would your friends and family members, your associates, what would they say is your tagline? Would they agree that the television programs you watch, the music you listen to, the internet sites you visit, the conversations in which you engage, would they agree that they reflect the tagline for which you wish to be known? I'm particularly fond of the tagline of the youth of the Church, the one that they're aligning themselves with in Mutual this year, the 13th article of faith. BYU Broadcasting is likewise trying to model its programming after this theme. We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. And if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Second, conduct a self-assessment of your own consumption of media or using the terminology of today's generation, what's on your playlist? As you're deciding on this tagline, you need to assess whether the decisions that you're making around your media are compatible with your taglines. In other words, is the tagline credible that you've chosen when it's weighed against this playlist that I'm talking about? I'm not just talking about your iPods or your MP3 players, although they would certainly be included. Your playlist would include all of the daily decisions that you make. President Samuelson, in his opening devotional this semester, shared a quote from President David O. McKay regarding self-mastery and personal character. And then President Samuelson said, While President McKay did not live during the time of internet, texting, tweeting, reality television, MP3 players, or social networking, the principles he taught are just as vital today as they were in the twentieth century. We all know the blessings of appropriate self-control and the heartache attached to addictions or indiscretions of every kind. Just like King Benjamin, we can't list all of the ways we need to practice self-control. But King Benjamin's advice is absolutely timely. And then President Samuelson quoted the closing verses of one of my favorite chapters in the Book of Mormon, as it is, in my opinion, the perfect blueprint for how we should live our lives. Mosiah 4. And finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. But this much I can tell you, that if ye do not watch yourselves and your thoughts, and your words, and your deeds, and observe the commandments of God, and continue in the faith of what ye have heard concerning the coming of our Lord, even unto the end of your lives, ye must perish. And now, O man, remember and perish not. Several years ago, I was visiting with a friend in Mesa, Arizona. He was a stake president at the time, and he shared with me a very personal experience that, with his permission, I'd like to share with you this morning. He said, I was preparing for our state conference and having a bit of a stupor of thought on what I should share with the members of my stake. On the Friday night prior to the conference, I had a most peculiar dream. He said it was one of those dreams that was as real as any experience that he had ever had while he was awake. He said, I dreamed I was at a family reunion with my entire family, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, We were all gathered in the backyard of our home and enjoying a wonderful spring afternoon together. And then he said, I saw the most amazing and beautiful sight. It was a flock of blackbirds, but not an ordinary flock of blackbirds. He said, this was one of those flocks that must have had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of blackbirds, all flying gracefully in perfect unison. He said the birds would dart one direction and then, as if cued from their leader, they'd immediately dart the other direction. Not a bird was missing a beat. He said, I stood there with my family, eyes transfixed. It was beautiful and captivating. And as we watched this spectacle, he continued, the birds came closer and closer to us. It was all very exciting. As we watched, though, we noticed that the birds were pairing off two by two, and they were landing in the backyards of the homes of all of my neighbors. He said, I thought this was rather peculiar. And then, as they got closer to my own backyard, the scene began to come into focus, and I realized in an instant that these were not blackbirds after all. He said these were dark, evil spirits. Immediately, he said, I panicked and I yelled to my family to run into the house and to lock the doors and the windows. I was frantically trying to make sure all of the members of my family were accounted for and safe, my sweetheart, my children, and their children. He said we ran through the house, slamming the windows and shutting the doors and locking them. He said I gathered everyone together in the family room where I thought we would be safe, but then... As I turned around, there they were. He said, I found myself standing between these two terribly evil beings and my precious family. A window had somehow been left ajar in the basement, and they found their way into our home. Closed home. You know and I know that the adversary and his evil spirits are descending upon our families and trying to find their way into our homes and our apartments and our dorms. At first, they appear to be beautiful, enticing, even captivating, even to the point that if we are not careful, we will allow our families to stand right in the path, gazing upon them as though we are extending an open invitation to them to enter into our homes. So again, I would ask you to consider the question, What's on your playlist? Third, become actively engaged in using these technologies for good. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Savior taught, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven at BYU Broadcasting and with most every other media organization in the world, we know that television and media in general are no longer push technologies for passive viewing experiences. Today's audiences, I'm talking about each of you, want to be engaged. They want to participate in the conversation. So now, here's our object lesson. Those of you here today with a portable device a digital device, a cell phone, an iPhone, an iPad, a laptop, hold it up in the air if you can do that without dropping it on the person in front of you. Look around you. Look at the hands. Incredible, isn't it? If such a request had been made when I was a student at BYU, not a single hand would have gone up. Thank you. Students as young as elementary and junior high school, but more frequently high school and college-aged students, including many of you here at BYU, are very much engaged in the worldwide online community. You are building your own websites, iPhone and iPad apps, and other digital social media applications you are shooting and editing and uploading videos to your own websites and other public sites like YouTube. And as we heard two weeks ago from Mark Zuckerberg in this very room, over 500 million people, including most of you, now have a Facebook account. Speaking at graduation exercises at both BYU-Idaho and BYU-Hawaii, Elder M. Russell Ballard has encouraged our BYU students to not just see the good, but to do the good. He told them to join the conversation by participating on the Internet. Quote, How different your world is today. If you read the newspapers, chances are you read them on the Internet. Yours is the world of cyberspace, cell phones that capture video, video downloads and iTunes, social networks like Facebook, text messaging and blogs, handhelds and podcasts. There are conversations, Elder Ballard said, going on about the Church constantly. Those conversations will continue whether or not we choose to participate in them, but we cannot stand on the sidelines while others including our critics, attempt to define what the Church teaches. And this past Sunday morning, you'll remember President Uchtdorf told us, With so many social media resources and a multitude of more or less useful gadgets at our disposal, sharing the good news of the gospel is easier and the effects more far-reaching than ever before. Perhaps the Lord's encouragement to open our mouths might today include using your hands to blog and text message the gospel to all the world. With the blessings of modern technology, we can express gratitude and joy about God's great plan for his children in a way that can be heard not only around our workplace, but around the world. Brothers and sisters, you are the light of the world, and you are the future mileposts in the timeline of technology. May we recognize a loving Heavenly Father's hand in the miracles of the technologies around us and remember that He gave them to bless us and our families and to advance His work. May we hold strong to the taglines and playlists that we wish to be known for, and may we be actively engaged in the cause of truth as we seek to not only see the good— but to be the good and to do the good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the goods and bads of technology. We've just heard from Derek A. Marquis. After the break, we'll return with Van C. Gessel for The Welding Link of Culture. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the goods and bads of technology. Next is Van C. Gessel, Dean of the BYU College of Humanities at the time of this address, titled The Welding Link of Culture.
2: In the 128th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prophet Joseph Smith describes a welding link that must exist between the past, the present, and the future in order for us to be made perfect along with both our ancestors and our posterity. He refers, of course, to the offering of the ordinances of exaltation so that we can present to the Lord a book containing the records of our dead which shall be worthy of all acceptation. Those who've done any family history work will know the great sense of fulfillment and gratitude that comes when we can learn enough about an ancestor that she ceases to be just another name with a death date to us and is resurrected in our minds as a living human being endowed with a unique personality and all the other human traits that help us develop a connection or a welding link to her. In the emotional sense, this link may be something like the taming process, that the fox teaches the little prince in Antoine de Saint-Jupéry's classic tale. To me, the fox declares, you are still nothing more than a little boy who is just like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you, and you on your part have no need of me. To you, I am nothing more than a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, then we shall need each other. To me, you will be unique in all the world. To you, I shall be unique in all the world." Once we have tamed our ancestors, they are unique in all the world to us, and our attachment to them grows. But what I want to propose to you today is that there may be additional essential forms of linkage between ourselves and our loved ones of both yesterday and tomorrow. Our predecessors lived lives very different from those which we are experiencing today, and it is an absolute reality that our posterity will inhabit a world very unlike the one we know. Just as my mother, who is here with us today, born just 15 years after the Wright brothers took a flying leap at Kitty Hawk, sees her great-grandson Andrew growing up in a world that none of the most creative science fiction writers of her day even began to imagine. As we ponder the Lord's injunctions to us in sections 88, 90, and 93, where we're told to diligently study good books and history and geography and languages and peoples and virtually every other imaginal discipline, I can't help but wonder whether the Lord, in fact, wants us to forge a link between the civilizations of the past and our own day and then to transmit them on to our own progeny. Perhaps one of the welding links that will help each of us to be tethered more securely to our ancestors can be achieved by familiarizing ourselves with the cultures in which they were born, lived, married, wept, laughed, and created families of their own. Surely their lives were greatly influenced by the books they read, the music they enjoyed, the dances they danced— just as are yours. It seems to me it would be a terrible waste, since we are the inheritors of the cultural legacy they created, to allow it to die by dismissing it as old-fashioned. And yet, it is the death of earlier cultures, due to our failure to study and pass them along, that is of great concern to me. The popular culture of the present has become so pervasive, so omnipresent, and so hypnotically narcotic in its technological manifestations that it's all but fully succeeded in destroying any sense of obligation to learn anything about former days. After all, the word classic to many only takes you as far back as classic rock. Why sniff around in the musty old archives of a lifeless past when you can simply insert the iPod headphones into your ears and thereby fully immerse yourselves in a study of... Well, surely there's something in there that will help you in your quest for eternal life. (laughs) I hesitate to be too critical of contemporary pop culture, if only because some of you are pretty heavily into some aspects of it, and I have found that the youth of the Church are, to a surprising degree, more willing to listen to a pulpit-pounding sermon on the law of chastity than to have the worth of their favorite music or movies or video games called into question. But there are two significant perils in being unfamiliar with the cultural treasures of the past and being excessively absorbed in contemporary pop culture. First, you run the risk of breaking that critical link with the past. And second, you may be overwhelmed as a torrent of images and sounds floods over you like the combined plagues of Egypt. And so I will have to run the risk of offending some of you as I suggest a few ways in which the modern media glut keeps you not only from accessing the culture of the past— but also most perilously from having unbroken access to the Spirit of the Lord. And, as I understand section 121, we are not counseled to have the Holy Ghost as our intermittent companion. I hope you will not dismiss out of hand the following brief critique of contemporary pop culture. Please understand that I am not trying to suggest that you have bad taste merely that the range of tastes offered to you through most of the current media is extremely limited and that there are numerous ways in which today's popular forms of entertainment promote values that are glaringly inconsistent with the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you already know that because you've grown up in this culture. Just as the Lord has reserved his best spirits—that would be you—for the last days, the adversary is giving us his very worst— Over the course of time, as standards have eroded away, Satan has taken everything sacred and pulled it down to his hellish level. It simply can't just be a cosmic coincidence that the tangible object that the adversary most craves, a physical body, is precisely the object toward which he aims the most lethal of his fiery darts in his manipulation of the entertainment media. How to make mortals regard the human body as less than holy? Very simple. Strip its sacredness of all its modest coverings and parade it to public view batter it and explode it and riddle it with bullets, display it nakedly engaged in its most intimate activities to make sure the viewer or listener comes to consider public performances of sexual activity as commonplace. What our Father in Heaven regards as a holy of holies, Satan treats as an open-set film studio. You can almost hear the fiendish laughs of the demons over every depiction of the physical bodies they so desperately envy, being exposed to public view and treated like so much meat in a butcher shop. Some of you will regard me as hopelessly out of touch. I hope I am. I would rather make entertainment choices more closely aligned with those of Gordon Hinckley than of Hugh Hefner. I'm sure you know the directions for how to boil a frog. He'll jump out of the pot if the water's too hot when you first put him in it. But if you start him in tepid water and then gradually turn up the heat, he won't notice how bad it's getting for him until it's way too late. I think many of the spiritual challenges you face come because the pot of water into which you were born in today's society is already at the boiling point, and the cultural milieu in which you live can feel normal unless you do a couple of very important things to test its temperature. First, acquaint yourselves with the great cultural traditions of the past to give you some point of comparative reference and to be reminded of how difficult issues can be treated with respect and restraint. Second, and most important, evaluate everything that you take into your mind and spirit using the standards established by the Lord, whose only purpose is to shield you from evil and prepare you for the better good. I think most of our problems with the popular media could be solved very simply if we would apply the Lord's clear standards. In our entertainment choices, we must seek after those works which are virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy. Mormon also provided us a clear measure from the Lord. For every good thing which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. Using the Lord's standards, how is contemporary culture faring? Last week I pulled up Billboard magazine's list of the top 20 pop songs in the country. Then I read the lyrics to all twenty. Warning, do not attempt this at home. Even after I had mentally bleeped out all of the obscenities, which were legion, the message that emerged was an ugly, surprisingly consistent message of violence, hate, prejudice, drug peddling, an obsessive preoccupation with the carnal, and a disturbing denigration of the disposable, interchangeable sex objects known as women. I could not in good conscience recommend to you more than one out of those 20 songs, with a begrudging admission that another three are probably not overtly destructive. President Boyd K. Packer has taught, Some music is spiritually very destructive. You young people know what kind that is. The tempo, the sounds, and the lifestyle of those who perform it repel the spirit. It is far more dangerous than you may suppose, for it can smother your spiritual senses. End of quote. Now, what about movies? I've been listening carefully for the past 19 years, and I haven't heard any prophet during that time declare null and void the straightforward declaration of President Ezra Taft Benson, who was, I might note, president of the Church in 1986 when he said, quote, Don't see R-rated movies or vulgar videos or participate in any entertainment that is immoral, suggestive, or pornographic. End of quote. Nor have I noticed a significant reduction in the portrayals of violence, profanity and sexuality in motion pictures since that time, au contraire. For the strength of youth similarly provides a useful standard, quote, do not attend, view or participate in entertainment that is vulgar, immoral, violent or pornographic in any way. End of quote. What does that particular standard do to the excuse, well, it's only rated that way because of the violence? or just because of some bad language? And why do some think they have reached a certain level of adulthood where prophetic counsel no longer applies to them? To those who stand at the doorways leading into graphic representations of the blood and sins of our current generation, the Lord's call is, Come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not their unclean things. You probably ought to know that while you were sleeping, Hollywood has pulled another fast one on you. Just within the past month, without fanfare or public proclamation, the often unreliable MPAA rating board suddenly upped the number of times that that infamous word, the vilest of vulgarities, the one beginning with the sixth letter of the alphabet, if you don't know what I'm talking about, can be used in PG-13 movies. For some time now, only one use was allowed by the ratings board. But within the past month, the PG-13 rating has been awarded to one film containing five uses of that vulgarity, Even more disturbing is the fact that after a documentary-maker appealed the R-rating given to his film, he was allowed to distribute it with a PG-13, even though the vulgar word is uttered 42 times in the space of 85 short minutes. Some of you know even better than I that there are scores of PG-13 movies that are more vulgar and suggestive than some R-rated films. These are the leering, snickering films aimed at a hormonally hobbled teenage audience. They are relentlessly obsessed with crude depictions and descriptions of sexual activity and are blatantly offensive to the spirit. And parents, unfortunately, too often turn a blind eye to the viewing of such films, since, after all, they're just rated PG-13. Meanwhile, the film industry, ever eager to have us pay more for our passions, has started to include a good deal of inappropriate but unrated material in the DVD releases of their films. And too often it's intentionally unrated because it's more violent and crude than the theatrical release. With so much that is odious to the spirit being hurled at you from movie screens, I would suggest that you spend at least as much time checking on the content of a film before you go see it as you do comparing cell phone rates. There are any number of good websites, including kidsinmind.com and screenit.com, that will give you detailed information about a movie's potentially objectionable features. The bottom line message here is very simple. Don't trade your birthright for a mess of footage. Okay, so you're living in a society that's nearing the final boiling point, a world that continues its free fall plummet from Kolob while we're trying to crawl our way back. What can you do to avoid being of that world and its culture if you have heeded prophetic warnings and recognize that you are virtually submerged in very hot water? In addition to simple avoidance and endless vigilance to keep the Spirit with you in all your activities, I would suggest that additional strength can come as you tighten the cultural link between yourself and your ancestors so that you will have much of great worth to enrich your own life and subsequently pass along to your descendants. As with anything that is of true spiritual consequence, however, you must first foster within your heart a desire to learn from the past— And you will no doubt have to fight some significant battles to pull yourself away from the gravitational pull of today's popular culture and media. I encourage you to drink deeply from the wells of culture, your own native culture as well as the civilizations of other places and other times. I'm going to focus my remaining comments on the essential role that reading plays in the lifelong education that the Lord would have you pursue. But please bear in mind that what I say about the ingestion of books applies equally well to our need and responsibility to listen to good music, to study great paintings, to attend plays and dances, and in many other uplifting ways to immerse ourselves in the culture that shaped the lives of those to whom we would wish to be linked for eternity. I think I would much rather be with my great-grandparents than, say, with Brittany. (laughs) Why am I so excitable on this simple subject of reading? because it's happening less and less in our society, most likely because of the rapid development of technological tools that force-feed us contemporary culture at all times and in all places. Hmm. Sort of sounds like it's in direct competition with our efforts to stand as witnesses of Christ at all times and in all places. Last year, the National Endowment for the Arts published a study titled Reading at Risk. The study found that over the past 20 years, the percentage of adult Americans who read literature has dropped by more than 10% paralleling a decline in total reading of books, particularly in the age group between 18 and 24. During the year 2002, 90 million adults in the United States did not read a single book. And I think you can guess what young people are doing with their time instead of reading. You're all going to get thumb cramps from those cell phones. What are the benefits of reading? T.S. Eliot said, We read a lot of books because we cannot know a lot of people. The only way in mortality that we can really come to know our deceased kindred is by reading about the kinds of lives they lived, whether they happened to be saints or scoundrels. Much can be learned from the choices made by both types. It would be short-sighted to shun the scoundrels and thereby lose the opportunity to learn from their mistakes rather than having to repeat them ourselves. So, for example, while it's not my personal intention to violate the law of chastity, and I don't mind declaring that publicly, I will live the rest of my life interacting with and be under a sacred obligation as a disciple of Christ to serve as a positive influence on people who regularly do engage in immoral activity. Frankly, I would rather gain my understanding of the hearts and minds of such people by reading Madame Bovary or The Heart of the Matter or The Once and Future King and from watching visual depictions of the sin that cannot help but simultaneously glorify and debase it merely by the act of showing it, no matter what moral stance, if any, they choose to take toward the action. Sven Berkertz, in his book The Gutenberg Elegies, writes, quote, Reading is at once a movement and a comment of sorts about the place one has left. To open a book voluntarily is, at some level, to remark the insufficiency either of one's life or of one's orientation toward it. When we read, we not only transplant ourselves to the place of the text, but we modify our natural angle of regard upon all things. We reposition the self in order to see differently. When we enter a novel, no matter what novel, we step into the whole world anew. For the space of our reading, and perhaps beyond, it changes our relation to all things. What reading does ultimately is keep alive the dangerous and exhilarating idea that life has a unitary pattern inscribed within it, a pattern that we could discern for ourselves if we could somehow lay the whole of our experience out like a map. I might ask, how is the experience of reading that Burkerts describes here qualitatively different from the process of eternal progression? Can we ever become better until we sense and wish to transcend the insufficiencies of our current life? But how do we gain an awareness of those insufficiencies? Through prayer and repentance, of course, but also through reading. Do we have any hope of becoming more like our creator if we cannot modify our natural angle of regard upon all things to see things differently? A vision altered, I would suggest, through reading. If we fail somehow to acquire the skill of entering into unfamiliar worlds anew, how can we avoid being trapped literally damned in our current imperfections, and how can we ever begin to imagine the infinities where God dwells and labors? Eight years ago, just after I was appointed Dean of the College of Humanities, Elder Henry B. Eyring, then Commissioner of Church Education, challenged me to spend some time pondering the answer to a very simple question. He asked, Why do we teach a book like The Great Gatsby at BYU? Now, There are many simplistic, snobbishly pedantic ways to dismiss the question altogether. I've chosen to take it seriously, especially since this devotional is being broadcast. <laughs> As I have pondered eller Iring's question, a piece of a part of an answer is beginning to crystallize in my head. Before I venture to unload it on you, and please don't get your hopes up too high, I have to refer to a favorite passage from one of C.S. Lewis's space fantasy novels titled *Perelandra*. In this alternate reading of the Garden of Eden Calamity, Lewis conjures up a second Eve. Still innocent but learning much about her paradisiacal garden home, Eve considers the ways in which God's perspectives are superior to ours, and she muses, When I was young, I could imagine no beauty but this of our own world. But God can think of all and all different. Can we, I wonder, ever be gods and goddesses of our own universes, eternal parents of imperfect beings who will have to go through the mortal travails as each one of us will have done, without somehow having an understanding of and even an empathy toward our flawed prodigy? An empathy better learned, I would suggest, from reading Hamlet than from listening to hip-hop. How do we school ourselves to comprehend, even marvel at and love, the mental and emotional worlds of other people, since we can never live inside their heads or experience life just the way they experience it? How will perfected humans, looking down from the heights of their own Mount Olympuses, be able to observe the stupid, bungling, relentlessly sinful acts of their children and resist the temptation to thunderbolt them all to ashes? The training program to develop such divine restraint, or should we call it charity, is no doubt a complex one. But I seriously doubt that the products of contemporary popular culture will show up on the syllabus for that training curriculum. Rather, I anticipate we will need to prepare ourselves to understand the heights and depths of human experience vicariously —perhaps another of our minuscule attempts to mirror the Christ—through our reading and expanded cultural literacy. We can begin to prepare ourselves now so that in the eternities we can spend some gloriously bright, clear days with our ancestors discussing the books both they and we have read, listening to mutually evocative masterpieces of music, sharing a bag of perfected popcorn as we laugh at Buster Keaton, weep along with Tom and Ma Jode, and sing and dance with Fred and Ginger. But this is a lot more than just cool family home evenings with the eternal fam. <laughs> and why is Fitzgerald's novel about adultery, obsession, alcoholism, and murder taught at a place like BYU? Well, in part, because all those who are crowned with glory and immortality and eternal lives will have in their own kingdoms an array of offspring who are in their own ways disobedient, annoying, and horrifying. We will have to learn how to deal with an abundance of our own Jay Gatsby's and Sweeney Todd's and Paul Potts and de Sade and Brian David Mitchell's. And just as it is presently the work and the glory of our Father in Heaven to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life— in spite of all he knows about us, which is everything, it will hopefully be someday our work and our glory to help provide those same blessings for countless souls who are very much unlike ourselves, and many of them will be supremely unlovable. In my experience, the best way to come to know such people, and not merely to know them, but to know them well enough to be able to love them beneath all the layers of their sins and imperfections, is through the instrument of good books. After all, the Lord has repeatedly said that it is out of the books that we shall be judged. We each have an eternal moral obligation not only to flee the wickedness that has polluted far too much of the culture of our day, but also to seek after the good, the true, the virtuous, the uplifting that has been produced in the cultures of mankind for countless centuries. None of us will be in mortality long enough to be able to experience all that is good there. So how can we afford to waste our time on the bad? Already in the cultural storehouse of humanity is a huge body of works that will help you better understand who you really are and train you how to relish the nobility as well as the sufferings of the individuals depicted in them, to glory in the quiet strains of hummable melodies, to savor the intelligent turn of lyrical phrase, to laugh and weep at the humanizing films of past and present instead of the dehumanizing mate and maim movies being served up on far too many local screens. Parents must expose their children to an endlessly regenerative menu of good entertainment that can help displace the mindless slop of the garbage heap. But it will take committed parents, siblings, and leaders who make the conscious decision to bring the past into the present, to restore the great works to life in their homes, to buy and play for their families the movies and recordings, to display the art, and to experience together the masterpieces, pieces that I can only imagine are loved by our Lord and Master himself. There are so many truly inspiring works that our forebears, often under the influence of divine inspiration, were able to create. And could it possibly be that we, without them, cannot be saved? As disciples of Christ, we have a divine obligation to love the good and the beautiful and to keep ourselves unspotted by the bad and the ugly. In his first presidency message in last September's Ensign, President Hinckley assured us that quote, "...the situation is far from hopeless." and that there is no need to stand still and let the filth and violence overwhelm us or to run in despair. The tide, high and menacing as it is, can be turned back if enough people will add their strength to the strength of the few who are now effectively working. I believe the challenge to oppose this evil is one from which members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as citizens, cannot shrink. End of quote. May I encourage you to steep yourselves in the cultural riches of your ancestors. I promise you will be a better, more sensitive, more understanding, and appreciative individual, a better spouse, parent, and citizen, and disciple of Christ as a result. The more links you forge with your ancestors through their culture, the richer the legacy you will have to pass along to your own children and grandchildren. Begin to teach your own children from the earliest possible moment in their development the intellectual and emotional and spiritual value of reading and of cultural linkage. If we continue to lose ground against the torrent of digitized culture that moves so fast that it cannot be given a moral rating, we run the risk of losing our souls. I testify to you that we have a loving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who atoned for the bad within us and around us so that we might fully embrace the good. I bear witness that He has the power to weld us together with all of our loved ones from all dispensations and for all eternity and that we can draw closer to them by coming to know them as individuals who actually lived and labored, who read books and listened to music, and whose lives were shaped by their faith and by their culture. That we may, in all our labors and all our recreation, help to create those welding links with those who came before us and those who will follow, links of faith, of love, and of reverence for the finest things that the human soul has created, is my sincere prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was the goods and bads of technology with thoughts from Derek A. Marquis and Van C. Gessel. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter